Hello. Welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm your host, D.P. Lyle. Today I want to talk about um, identifying uh, an unknown corpse. Uh, this is often <laughs> occurs in real life and, of course, in fictional writing. And uh, hopefully there's some things in here you can use. Um, I mentioned um, in, in a previous uh uh, broadcast here, a, a podcast here, uh, I talked about uh, getting rid of a corpse, getting rid of a body, and how difficult that is to do, and the things that people had tried. So uh, I won't rehash that here, but you might want to go back and listen to that one. Now, when a body is found and a homicide investigation is launched, the identification of the body is usually, you know, nine times out of ten, very easy. The person's found bludgeoned to death on their uh, living room floor and the spouse is on the run. Or they're sitting behind the wheel of their car after a drive-by shooting. Or um, they're found at their workplace slumped over behind their desk where someone shot them. In other words, most people are easily identifiable because someone there, someone around them, someone, some family member, some friend, somebody recognizes them, they're found dead in a location that everybody knows what they are. Bang, here we go. That's the easy part. But let's say that your investigator finds a corpse or a corpse is, uh, is brought into an investigation that, that your person's in charge of and there's no identification. It's just a dead body found in a ditch along the side of the road or hikers stumble on it in the woods, etc., etc., etc. So what are the things that are used to help identify who this person is? Now, obviously, it helps if they got a wallet in their pocket and things like that, but let's say they don't. And uh, so they're just found dead laying in the woods. The sooner after death that the corpse is discovered, the more tools that the investigators have to work with. And this has to do because... Time is not nice to dead bodies. Uh, they decay, uh, and how fast they decay depends upon the location and some other factors, uh, but mainly it's location and ambient temperature. So a body, you know, in a swamp in Louisiana in August is going to be destroyed or at least severely damaged in a matter of days. Uh, and one who is in the mountains in Colorado in April where it's, you know, never gets above 60 degrees during the daytime at, at, at 10,000 feet, um, that, that corpse is going to be four or five days later very well uh, preserved. So how much they have to work with depends upon the condition of the corpse. But let's say we got a corpse that's in pretty good shape. It was found recently after murder, after the murder. So what do we do? Let's uh, let's go from the outside in, so to speak. Obviously, if they can take photographs and someone recognizes them, uh, that helps. No question about it. Uh, they can even put it out to the media, and the media may respond, and, and somebody may call the media and say, oh, I know this person. Um, or maybe not, and in which case... Now you go and they search for missing person reports. And let's say that uh, the person's a 30-year-old male uh, found in a cornfield in Iowa. And lo and behold, a town, uh, you know, just 15 miles away, a 30-year-old male was reported missing uh, three days earlier. Well, that gives you a thing. It may not be him, but it might be. So you go find out who this person is, get someone to identify him, etc. That's the easy part. 
But what if none of that is available? What if the missing person reports don't match up? What if no one knows this person and now you've got a body? Why is it important to identify the body? Well, 90% of murders happen between two people who know each other or have some relationship. You know, it may be a marriage, it may be a, a love triangle, it may be a friendship, it may be a sibling, it may be a business associate, but there's some relationship because people don't kill just for the hell of it. There's usually a motive, and the motive has to do with the connection between these two people. So identifying the corpse is critical. One of the first things that they will look at is the clothing. What kind of clothing is this? Someone who's wearing work boots versus someone who's wear, wearing uh, fancy shoes, that'll take you in two different directions. Sometimes the clothing is generic, you know, Levi's jeans, you know, a name brand t-shirt, Nike shoes that, that are, you know, tens of millions sold all the time. And it doesn't help you a whole lot. Um, but sometimes the clothing's very distinctive. It may be very expensive. It may be very unusual. It may be something that is associated with a particular individual. And now you can narrow that down. Rings and jewelry the same way. Often they're inscribed with someone's name, uh, a date of a marriage, something like that on a wedding ring. All of those things can be used to start moving down the path to identify this person. Um, Anything around the person, let's say they were wrapped in a tarp or wrapped in a blanket and dumped. Well, the blanket belongs to somebody. It came from somewhere. And it may be distinctive. It may be that someone recognizes the blanket. This often happens with babies and children who are, who are murdered and dumped somewhere because they wrap them up in, in, in a cloth of some type, and usually it's their bed blanket or whatever. Maybe they got their teddy bear with them. I mean, all of these things are called artifacts, burial artifacts, or around-the-scene artifacts. And all of these can be used. So maybe they're put into a coffin, a makeshift coffin, the type of wood, the way it's cut, how it's constructed. All of these things may point to someone. At least it's a piece of evidence that can be traced. And maybe there's a carpenter in the next town who builds this type of box. All right, moving in a little further. What about birthmarks and tattoos and stuff like that? Well, birthmarks, obviously are things that people are born with. They have all their lives. You know, the, one of the most famous one was Gorbachev's, uh, you know, port wine stain over his forehead, and everybody everybody remembers that very well. Uh, and a lot of birthmarks are distinctive, and in fact, they are very identifying because no two are alike. So if you have a photograph of someone who was reported missing, and you see that birthmark, and now you got this corpse with a similar birthmark, that's pretty good. Or maybe someone just recognized, you know, this was on this, this young lady's shoulder, this birthmark. They put it out and somebody says, oh, my God, that's my daughter. I thought she'd gone, you know, I thought she'd gone on a trip. I didn't realize she didn't make it, you know, 500 yards from the house. Um, so those things can be used. Tattoos, of course, are very distinctive. And obviously they are very widespread now and more so every day, it seems like. But a lot of tattoo artists have their own 
palette, if you will, their own colors, their own choices, their own designs, and they become quite famous in a, in a, in a local area for that. And this may help. You see a, a certain pattern, uh, maybe a sleeve tattoo on an arm, and you say, oh, it cops may say, oh, I know the guy that does this kind of work. You know, he, he's down on Main Street. So you're going to talk to him and take him a picture and say, who did you do this for? Bang, he's got it. So tattoos can help. Also, there are tattoos that symbolize belonging to a club, if you will. You know, a lot of gangs have their own tattoos. MS-13, all of these, they have different tattoos. So if someone has that, now what have you done? You've, you've kind of narrowed this person down to belonging to this group. That will help you with your search and help you to locate and identify the group that this person is associated with, and maybe that will lead to the person's identification. So that worked very, very well. Um, what about scars, surgical scars? Um, let's say someone's had, uh, has uh, the corpse has, shows a, a, an appendectomy scar or a gallbladder removal scar or back surgery or something. Okay, fine. But, you know, surgeries like this go on all the time. But scars can be aged up to a point. You've all had, uh, you know, cut yourself and seen something heal or had stitches or whatever, maybe a surgical scar in your life. And you know how it gets uh, kind of angry and pink for a little while, and then it kind of pales a little bit and it shrinks on down. And gradually, you know, five years later, you say, well, where was that scar? Because it has shrunk down. And that's what happens. That's part of the normal healing process of the body. It's angry. It's pink to start with because all the cells are in there repairing stuff. Gradually, they lay down the collagen and all the other fibrous material and pull it tight and shrink the scar down so that it becomes a thin silver line. Well, if the medical examiner sees a scar from a gallbladder removal on an individual uh, and they and they they say look at it and say, well this this scar is healing, but this scar is maybe one or two months old. It's not a year old and it's not two days old. You know, it's a month or two. Well now they can go to local hospitals and expand from there and say, who has had a gallbladder out that, oh yeah, by the way, is a five foot two, approximately 25 year old female. Well, you see how that can narrow it down. So that works. One of the most famous cases of a tattoo actually took place in, um, I think it was in Australia, uh, in the 1930s, 1935 comes to mind. And, uh, it was called the shark arm murder. And basically, it's a long, involved story, uh, but this tattoo on this particular individual's arm showed two boxers kind of facing off, getting ready to hit each other, and uh, it was a famous tattoo. Everybody knew he had it. Well, uh, they ended up finding this arm with a tattoo in the, in, the, in the belly of a shark that was caught and opened up, and uh, they said, oh, Lord, you know, I know who that is. Well, to make a long story short, when they looked at it, they realized that this arm was not bitten by the shark. It was cut. It had clean lines. Therefore, they knew that he had been murdered, or at least he had missed his arm, <laughs> and his arm was thrown in the ocean, and the shark just swam by and said, oh, look at this. So, ultimately, the, the killers were apprehended and tried and convicted. But this was the famous shark arm murder case. It's all discussed, I think, in Forensics for Dummies and in How Done It Forensics, if you want to know more about it. Uh, also, there are certain uh, diseases and things that people can have. There are certain diseases that affect uh, 
the bones, it affects the tissues, whether someone, you know, everything from TB to, um, you know, tumors of different types, uh, to have cirrhosis, any of these types of illnesses that can be found in the body at autopsy, well, the person may be under treatment for this. And so now you can look at local physicians and say, I do have a patient about this size, about this age, this sex, et cetera, that you're treating for this. That may form a pathway. What about fingerprints? Well, fingerprints are usually easy to, to, to obtain, but sometimes if the bodies are severely decayed, they, they're not so easy. And what about if the body's mummified? Now, mummies where all the water just comes out, this is usually in hotter and drier conditions, but it can happen in very cold and dry places too, like a freezer. You know, if you leave meat in there too long, how it shrinks down. Well, that's a, that's a form of mummification, but it's basically a desiccation or dehydration of the tissues. So now the body, the, the, the corpse becomes very stiff and leathery and, and shriveled and shrunken and looks like it's shrink-wrapped over the bones. Well, the fingerprints in that case are very hard to get. But what they do is they might soak the finger in water or glycerin or some combination thereof uh, and other solutions, and it absorbs that water slowly and pumps, plumps back up, and now they can get a fingerprint from it. Sometimes they'll even cut the pad off, and then they can spread it out on a slide and get it microscopically and, t and take photos of it. And sometimes they just make regular prints from it. Even laser scans and things like that can be used. So you can get fingerprints from the dead. Okay, so how useful is a fingerprint? Well, unless you know who you're looking for and you can compare this fingerprint with a known fingerprint from that missing individual, then you're left with, is this fingerprint in the database? So you go to the APHIS, you know, the, the fingerprint identification system, uh, and see if it's in there. But if this person has never been fingerprinted, is not in the system, then it doesn't help you there. So now you've got a fingerprint, but you don't know what to do with it. But as other clues come along and you start su suspecting, well, it could be Joe who works down at the gas station. You go down there and you find out Joe has a coffee mug that he used every day until he disappeared, you know, three days ago or, or six months ago, and it was sitting up on the counter and nobody touched it. Maybe you can still get Joe's fingerprints off of it. And so now you can identify, okay, these fingerprints are on Joe's cup. They're on this body. This must be Joe. Now, a similar thing goes with um, dental work. Um, teeth and teeth patterns are wonderful for identification, but you have to have something to compare them with. And the database for this in large numbers is not nearly as robust as the one for fingerprints, obviously. But um, if you... Um, if you have the finger, if you have the corpse and you can look at their, their, their dental pattern and then you start looking around for missing persons and you find, well, it could be Joe. And then you call his dentist and you can compare those dental things and pretty soon they, and if they match, then you can say, okay, this is Joe's body. And this can happen even if the body is severely decayed, even all the way to skeletonization. So you can use uh, dental uh, records and dental matching for that and it's very accurate because everybody's teeth is worn a little different everybody has different extractions different fillings different false teeth different whatever and so it's all a little bit different it's interesting that that uh 
way back, uh, I think it was the Roman emperor Claudius, um, had had his wife beheaded, <laughs> you know, that's what emperors did back then, but he wanted to sure it was her and he knew that she had a discolored front tooth. So, uh, he, uh, he forced uh, them to bring her the head, to bring him the head, so that he could examine the teeth and make sure that the head was indeed her. I don't know. I didn't just look at her, but anyway, that's what he did. One of the most unique and interesting uh, dental comparisons, if you will, was done by Paul Revere. You know, um, the one who warned the British are coming in 1775. Well, it turns out he had a friend. Uh, Dr. Joseph Warren. And Joseph Warren uh, was actually killed at the Battle of Bunker Hill. And uh, he was buried in kind of a mass grave, but the family wanted his body identified so they could do a private burial. Well, it turns out Paul Revere just didn't ride a horse. He also had dental experience and he made dental appliances. He was actually they said quite gifted at it, that he could make false teeth and he could make all these things, dentures of different types, and he was very good at it. So to make a long story short, they went through the bodies in, in the mass grave, and Paul Revere was able to identify the appliance he had made for his good friend, Dr. Warren, and that's how they had identified him. So you see, not not all is lost, even after the body's buried. Um and dental procedures work quite well for that. So what about DNA? Well, we have a similar problem with DNA with a few twists. A DNA profile obviously is quite accurate for identifying an individual. Each person has their own little DNA profile. Um, we used to think identical twins had the same DNA, but with the newer techniques of um, um, that, that we use for single chain nucleotide SNPs or SNPs as they call. Now even uh, identical twins can be uh, distinguished from one another. But that's not standard uh, DNA profiling. But so you got a corpse and you can get DNA quite easily. Uh, you can take blood out of the heart, you can take the tissue, you can do all kinds of things. You can drill it out of the bones, the teeth, whatever. But you can, regardless of how decayed the corpse is, you still should be able to get it from the bones and the teeth most of the time, if not the tissues that, are, that have survived. And so now you have DNA and you do a profile of it. Okay, fine. Now what are you going to do with that? Well, just like dental records and uh, fingerprints, it doesn't help you much until you have something to compare it with. But if you do in your missing persons reports find someone of the same size, age, sex, miss, missing for X amount of time, yada, yada, and you go there and examine something that belongs to them, a hairbrush, a toothbrush, a, a postage stamp that they licked, something like that, then you can often get a DNA profile from that and match it and say, okay, this is Joan. You know, this is Joan. We, we know that now for sure. Um, if that does, if that's not available to you, then you can always go to the DNA database known as CODIS. Now, this is often DNA is collected from felons and people convicted and arrested for felonies and stuff like that. But everybody's not in that database. And so if it's there, it's helpful. If it's not there, it's not helpful. 
And so it's, it's the same, same scenario, as I said, with fingerprints and dental records. But some of the newer genealogical and familial DNA studies that are, that are ongoing and uses that are ongoing might help here. If you uh, get this DNA profile and you upload it into CODIS, and let's say it comes up with a name that doesn't match identically, but is similar. Well, this could mean that those two individuals are related to one another. Um, this was used in the famous Grim Sleeper case, Ronnie, Lonnie Franklin here in Los Angeles. And uh, fortunately, Lonnie died last week or a couple of weeks ago. So long, Lonnie. Have a nice burn. But Lonnie was a, 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 a vicious serial killer that would break into people's homes and do all kinds of things and kill them. And he did it for over a long period of time with a hiatus in the middle, like he had gone to sleep. And then he reactivated, and that's why he became known as the Grim Sleeper. But they found a DNA match similar. And it turned out, if I remember correctly, it was like his nephew or something came forward and his DNA, and then they were able to get Lonnie's DNA, and they proved it was him that actually left the DNA at the crime scenes. But they did it through what's called familial DNA. So that's a route you can explore. It's a little complicated, but not that much, and you can Google it and read about it online if you want to use that. Also, if they're able to uh, get mitochondrial DNA or Y-chromosomal DNA, this may show a, a line um, if someone's suspected and you don't have any DNA from the victim, you might go to who they, th they think that this person's parents were, the, the corpse's parents were, or siblings, and obtain DNA from them. And mitochondrial DNA runs through the maternal line, and Y-chromosomal DNA runs through the paternal line so you can see how you can find out if they only the grandfather on the father's side is still living the y chromosomal dna if it's a male would show up if it's the maternal line same way going back up, up up that that pathway so you have a lot of tools available when your body is when a body is found and your investigator must identify the body. And we've talked about how important that is. So hopefully some of these techniques and some of these things I've talked about will help you plot a more clever story with a much smarter sleuth that figures all this stuff out. Again, if you want to know more about corpse identification and, and, and have a reference for this and a little more detail on everything, then either in Forensics for Dummies or How Done It Forensics, my two forensics books. Uh, if you get one of those and read it, you'll learn a whole lot more about it. But corpse, corpses are often found in fiction, and they are the inciting incident that kicks off the story. And often identifying the corpse is part of the mystery that unfolds in your story. And if so, I hope this gives you some tools for how to make your plot a little cooler and a little more complex. So this has been uh, D.P. Lyle here on Criminal Mischief. So until next time, I'll see you then.